Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Better Words. Hello. We have just spent 48 minutes talking absolute rubbish before we decided to hit record. So I'm planning, yes. planning and things And I think you should show. probably, <laughs> yes, you should probably all be grateful because it will mean that this uh, in- intro is probably going to be less rambly because we've got some of that out of the way. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Uh, future me, as I'm editing, definitely hope so. Um, <laughs> how was your week, Caitlin? It's been good. I Anyone who has, you know, ever done anything, been very busy for a while, you know, you finish a musical, you finish a play, you, fin- you know, your sports team season thing is over, you get sick, you go away mm. on holiday, you get sick. So I've been a little bit sick, but mostly. <laughs> I mean, good. I feel like it's definitely the time for Enjoy. that, not yeah. for me, <laughs> but like just so many of my friends and stuff as well. It is obviously we're going into winter over here. So it is yeah. the time for bugs and all that sort of stuff here, unfortunately. And it seems like the pe- like when people are getting sick at the moment, like all my friends are like, it is just hanging around for ages. Like they're just feeling terrible for ages. So fingers crossed, I don't get that. Although obviously now I work in a shop, there's probably more, more chance of that. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Around, around more people, people, someone was coughing all over the place the other day, and I was very, very judgy. I was like, "Ew, why did you come to these shops? Get away from me." I know. Well, this is, yeah, this is the thing not to, you know, get into it too much, but you just feel like you can't no, even sneeze once in public anymore. This let person alone, was clearly like, sick. You know, blowing my nose a couple of times in the office the other day. I was like, oh my God, I need to laugh. Oh, like, it's so... anyway, um, anyway, yeah, no, I have, I have been trying to read lots for future episodes. Um, but also it's been like really busy at work. We've had like lots of new stuff published, which is also really exciting seeing new stock come in. But before I talk about recommendations, I just want to share that I've also been to, it's the same Christmas market, but I've been twice already in a week. Um, so it really is beginning to feel a lot like Christmas. Also, we had our Christmas light switch on in town the other day in like where the where the shop is, um, which is, you know, Waterstones for anyone Aww. listening who um, has missed the memo that I work at Waterstones now. Um And so that was lovely that we'll now have Christmas lights since it gets dark so early. But they had, obviously, it was a really big day on Saturday, lots of families out and stuff like that. And I did hear All I Want for Christmas is You about Mm -hmm. eight times in the space of my four-hour shift, which is far too many in November. So I feel like I'm absolutely going to hate Christmas by the end of it. I won't want to play my Christmas playlist because I will have just been bombarded with the same songs. Like, I get that there's only a certain number of Christmas songs, but do you really need – I mean, literally within the space of 15 minutes it played twice. Like, that's too many. Yeah. I mean, this is the problem is that, like, oh, there's only a certain number. There's actually so, so many, but everyone knows the same, like, 
seven, you know, so it it's going to play. This is very relatable, Michelle. Everyone who's ever worked in retail is like yeah, feeling know. you right now. I've like never you just never have retail. before. So you and haven't actually, been you know what I to Jack it. The other night um, <laughs> was, this is the first job I've ever had where not that I, not that I don't have to think, obviously there's a lot to think about and I take the job very seriously and I want to engage in it when I'm there. But this is the first job I've ever had where I can just leave work and not think about work and not stress about work and not think like, yeah. is my story going to hit this many page views? Have I done something wrong? Have I made a mistake? Are enough people looking at the story? Have I got another idea for tomorrow? Like that has been my entire working life. And it is like a holiday for my brain to yeah. have a job where that is not the case. And I love it. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, and you know what? Not enough people appreciate that when we do have jobs like that, like in high school or uni before we've had other kinds of jobs. So people, yeah, I'm glad. Yeah, I really love it, especially that. after like, you know, full disclosure, when we first moved over here and stuff, I was very anxious about, you know, the my freelance copywriting business and all that sort of stuff. Like that is also a lot of like always on your mind stress of like, where's my next client coming from? And I don't mm. like that. <laughs> and, you know, it, if, if I stop yeah. doing anything in business, it will be because of that, because actually I really like the certainty of that and the certainty of a paycheck and being able to just go to work and then do the work, be good at it, hopefully, and then switch off when you come home. On this topic slightly, I have put up my Christmas tree, um, which I was very excited. I mean, I'm very jealous because so, we've actually you know, got to wait a couple of weeks, like, but I have feeling. reserved a real Christmas tree and we had a potted real Christmas yeah. tree before when we lived here, but I've reserved a, like a five to six foot tree and I'm so excited. Whoa. I know. I'm so excited. Oh my I mean, God, I feel like that's so not even cool. that tall because it's like about I'm, I'm my excited. height plus a bit taller but I'm so excited because <laughs> it was like you could you could reserve but a that's four to still, five that's foot really tree exciting. and I was like that's going to be like lower than me to like you know so then we were yeah. like talking and I was like let's do five to six foot ah, so I can't wait I'm so excited um so it gets so they're Hell delivering yeah. it on that's so exciting. Um, Sunday the 3rd of December um so yeah anyway we said there would be no rambling <laughs> so do you want to share your recommendations? I do. Um, we've completely failed on this because I was also just going to say very quickly that I have put up my Christmas tree and I've started, you know, like watching Christmas movies and things like this. And I was mm. wanted to pitch this to you, Michelle. So why not, you know, live on air? Um, I think we should do, after our November wrap up, I think we should do an extra kind of wrap up thing just with like Christmas recommendations for people to enjoy during December. I think December. that is a good idea. And then our December wrap-up would technically yes. be different. Okay. I think that's a good idea. We're still having episodes during December. So are you thinking like a bonus episode at the end yes. of November? Or oh, just, or just a yeah. Substack newsletter okay. with our like Christmas <gasps> Okay, that's actually a good idea because I don't necessarily want to edit yet another episode. That's a good idea. Yeah. I love that. Yes, let's do a Substack. Yeah. You know, we'll do our what we loved in November, but then we'll do a things to enjoy over the next few weeks. In yes. December, Christmas related, because by the time we get to our December wrap up, like people no. won't want to watch no. Christmas movies anymore. And you know? it won't necessarily be like. So that like what we loved yeah, in December and, is and a also, different Yeah, thing. what we loved in December won't necessarily be like all 
us watching Christmas movies. It will be other things that we read. Um, And I also like the idea that, you know, like some of my recommendations will be like, um, like wintery and yours won't be. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. And mine will be summery. Okay. Yes. Let's do that. Yeah. Okay. You can you can trim some of that. <laughs> no, I like um, that. I like the unfolding. So you can trim some of those details and will like it. But um, the the link to our Substack <laughs> is, is a live plan. In the show notes, as always. Please come find us on there, and please tell us what you like reading each month. Um, because you know we don't actually get many comments at the moment, but I would love to actually hear from people what they've enjoyed during the month. So um, yeah, come join us on Substack. Yes. <laughs> Please do subscribe, follow us. Like we we love the chat. We love doing these. Yeah, they are really I think fun. they're really fun. Um, anyway, <laughs> so my recommendation, official recommendation for this episode, um, is the house that Joy built by Holly Ringland, which I actually nice. listened to on audio. Um, it is obviously published by HarperCollins, and so I did gain access to this through work, um, but. I listened to this audiobook while I was doing heaps of driving during the two weeks that I was going like to the theater every day for Jersey Boys. Um, and it was so nice to listen to Holly's wonderful voice while I was driving home at midnight or later and like trying to calm down a bit, you know, or like even on the way there. And this nonfiction book is all about creativity and being creative and letting yourself be creative and feel the joy and the fear and like everything that comes along with it and a lot of it is told through Holly's experience and obviously her main sort of creative outlet is writing um which is kind of is meta because obviously it's a book that she had to write (laughs) and get through all of these things while like writing about them um but it really is applicable to everything and it's one of those things that you know people say that about the books it's like oh well, you know this person's a writer or like this person's a sports star but like it's about leadership <laughs> you know that kind of stuff and you think oh but is it I was listening to this audiobook all about creativity and doing things for the joy of it and not trying to achieve something or trying to accomplish something or maybe because you you know not like to be good at it, you know, to just enjoy it because you love it. While I was driving to the theatre to be in a community, you know, amateur musical that I haven't done for years, but I do love it. And like, I'm not going to have a career in this field and I don't want to. And, you know, I sort of always joke when people are like, oh, I didn't know you did musicals. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to pretend I'm like super duper talented, (laughs) but I really enjoy it. And I think I'm like, okay. And like, I'm good enough for this level you know, and it's so fun. And so driving and listening to it and thinking about just doing stuff you love and enjoy for the fun of it and getting past all of those creative blocks and fear blocks and everything in your head. I just really, really I mean, enjoyed it. It's, I thought it was, it was a great, I recommend listening, but I think it was also great. also a little bit like us doing this podcast and, and keeping it as a as something well, yeah, that exactly. we don't get paid for and we just do because we love it. I mean, it's not the same amount of creative blocks, obviously, yeah. as writing, but it's the idea that it's just something that we love doing and we're actively not monetizing it or making it a thing because it's 
mm. just more fun for us to be able to do it the way we want to. Yeah, yeah. But this is what I mean. I think, I think most people don't think about the things mm. they enjoy that much necessarily or or maybe they do think about them too much you know like you you just you just can enjoy having hobbies like it doesn't matter and you know cooking you know baking gardening writing you know your art class that you go to whatever like everyone has different things yeah I don't know I really enjoyed it my it's just really nice I think to reflect and like it's a you know I wouldn't say this book is self-help it's not memoir it's create it's non-fiction about creativity and I just think that everyone is creative and everyone should be creative because it's enjoyable and like do things that they enjoy just mm. because they enjoy them yeah I, mean, I think we've spoken about this before yeah. of like you know just doing something because you love it like I feel like we are the generation that is like turn your hobby into a career or business and it's like actually we don't need to totally. even us like reviewing books yeah. and stuff like no. I think we've both stepped away from reviewing things for a bit because we were like we just want to enjoy it and recently I've really gotten the urge to like write some reviews again on Substack just because I want to share my opinions and talk about it and and it's not the same I I don't know I I just was like oh I want to do it just because I'm yeah interested in chatting about it not because I want to monetize it or anything like that and that feels like weird in this world of like absolutely turn your writing and your Substack into something that makes money I know. Which is fine if you want to do that. Yeah, exactly. But even just like, yeah, totally. But like, you know, even just like all hobbies, you know, it's like you like going climbing and things and it's just like you're getting so much better and like enjoying it and having a go. And, you know, it's something that you and Jack do together. So like, that's fun. You know, it's just like, and like, yeah, you don't have to go to the Olympics and do rock (laughs) climbing. You can just enjoy the climbing. And I don't have to. I think, yeah, it's this like idea that it's not just like just lift some weights and do heavier weights. Like that to me is boring I'm loving the the whole vibe of yeah the sort of the create like not the creative side obviously but there is a I guess there is an element of creativity Mm. and it's fun to watch other people try bouldering in different ways because depending on your height and your ability people will tackle the same problem in so many different ways and that's quite cool to watch as well Anyway, that was a little side note. <laughs> yeah, so see, all this is cool. It's, yeah, it's great. Love this. I love talking about this kind of stuff. And so, yeah, if you, you know, like talking about these kinds of things and are interested in, you know, thinking about, because this is just kind of just generally a topic I think that I'm interested in, which sounds silly to say because it's a No, because I think we had this a similar discussion when we talked about way, this is but, not a book about Benedict But you know what I mean. Like that was about the idea of reclaiming yeah, not necessarily exactly. things and creative things you do, but reclaiming things you love. Like, yeah, but things like you're obsessed with and, that, know, that might be stuff. weird, yeah, but that's so, okay. So, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. So like this, you know, this broad umbrella of all of these kinds of things I really enjoy. And if, yeah, and actually, yeah, if people enjoyed this is not a book about Benedict Cumberbatch, I would say this is kind of a similar Mm -hmm. vibe. What are you recommending? So I'm actually recommending for the third time a Heli Acton book. And I feel like Ah. every year I've recommended a Heli Acton book. (laughs) This is her new one. Just as they come. Yeah. So this is the third Heli Acton book I'm going to recommend on the podcast um, because every year she releases something new. Um, So basically this is one I picked up from the library, didn't know anything about it, but was like, yes, I've enjoyed 
Heli Acton's previous books, The Couple and The Shelf. So I was like, you know what? I pick it up. Pretty sure it's going to be good. Had a bit of a skim and was like, yeah, cool. Um, so basically, Frankie is on a really bad date. She leaves the date and she's okay. eating a kebab and she slips, hits her head and dies. And when she wakes what? up, <laughs> I know, <laughs> when she wakes up, she's in like some sort of like King's Cross sort of very busy light. Like imagine like King's Cross from, I was picturing like oh, from Harry Potter. Like like Harry Potter, King's Cross. Yeah, like yeah, all white, like like, the... but with people all around. And there's all these departure okay. boards and you have to find your name and a room number. And she goes to the room and this person is like, you can relive or no, this person's like, you've got a choice. You can go to the final destination, self-explanatory, or Uh you can look at, there were like four or five points in your life where you made a decision that changed the course of your life. You can go and see what your life would have looked like if you'd made the other decision. So it's like, you don't go back to that Mm -hmm. moment. You go back to where you were when you died so say it's like 10 years later you're 10 years on from that decision but it's like you said yes to that person who proposed instead of no what would your life be like and then you can choose whether you want to go back and begin again in a new life or if you want to move on to the final destination so the book is her experiencing these different lives that she could have lived for 24 hours only and then she has to decide what she wants to do. Oh, my God. And so then you can go back to the beginning of your life? No, you go back make... to when you died. Made the... Oh. You don't okay, go back wait, to when sorry, you made what? the decision. You go back to, like, the age and, and the point you would have been. So if that was five years after you made the decision, ten years after you made the decision, you go back to, like, when you would have died. Oh. So she's also waking up and is like, okay, I have to figure out what the hell is going on with my life. Like, where am I? What have I? And, you know, people will say to her, like, in 24 hours. Oh, she'll just go back to, you won't necessarily die in that life, but she has 24 hours to experience that life and then choose. It's like parallel lives, sort of. Okay. She has 24 hours to experience that life and then choose whether she wants to go and live that life or not it, it's wow yeah it's a bit like parallel lives or like you know dropping into someone wow, else's life crazy. but you know there's that element of like what crazy people will be like, saying to concept. her like oh you know that thing we were talking about the other day and she's like yes um and and remind me like what what was you know like she's got to catch up with what's happening and still seem yeah. sort of normal and she's just having 24 hours in the body of the person who made that decision x amount of years ago Damn, that's such an interesting concept. It was so good and I flew through it. It was really fun. It was, yeah, it was, if you liked The Midnight Library by Matt Haig, this is like the rom-com fun version of that. Wow, I love the sound of that because I really love like a like a time slip or a time travel mm. and, you know, this kind of element. That sounds really, really cool. So it's sort of billed as like it's the good place meets sliding doors. So it's that sort of yeah, vibe. yeah. Of like going back and seeing like what would have been different and how would have people thought about you and what kind of life would you have had and would the problems be the same or different? So, 
yeah, it's um, it's really, really good. That's awesome. What was it called again? Oh, did I even say? Oh, my God. No, it's called Begin Again by Heli Acton. And I don't think I said oh, okay. that at the start. Begin Again by <laughs> Heli Acton. That sounds excellent. I think I've de- I've definitely read one of Heli Acton's books when he recommended them previously, but I think I'm going to have to get this one because this sounds right on my alley. I love the yeah. kind of time play things. Yeah, you'll love it. Awesome. You'll love it. And I don't know what to call just that. A, an, it, like fun, good read. Really enjoyed it. Um, race through it. Wonderful. Well, with that, let's get on with the rest of the show. Um, and yes. a very exciting first for us as well. <laughs> Is it a first? It's definitely a first in a while. It's the first she's ever written a rom-com. Our guest today is a Sydney-based writer and creative director. His work has been recognised at the Cannes Lion International Festival of Creativity, screened at the St Kilda Film Festival and is housed in the permanent archives of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. But today we are discussing his debut novel, Bound to Happen. Welcome to Better Words, Jonathan Shannon. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Um, We are excited to talk about this book because... We love rom-coms and we love, you know, fiction and like all these mischance. And I also think we love a bit of that almost magic and kind of, you know, that slight like little magical something extra special is going on kind of element um, in a lot of fiction that we would have talked about before. But to start us off, I was just getting straight into it and to start us off you should probably actually just tell everyone a bit about bound to happen in case they haven't read it yet yeah yeah let's definitely start there yeah um so <laughs> that's Before always I get the carried best away. place to start <laughs> no it sounds like we're ready to jump right into it but look i've sort of been describing bound to happen as a subversive romantic comedy and i'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that later but really it's a book about everything that happens when the meet cute doesn't So it follows the lives of two accidental strangers, Tom, who's an aspiring musician and believes in meant to be, and Sophie, an astrophysics PhD candidate who's very certain that the whole universe is just cold chaos and coincidence. So Tom and Sophie have never met, but when Tom starts writing a song about string theory, his ideas of fate collide with Sophie's scientific certainty and force both of them to question their understanding of love, the universe, and everything in between. That's a very good description. You've obviously practiced that a few times now. <laughs> I've definitely had to roll roll that out a few times, absolutely. And in, the, the trick is getting it consistent each time. So it sounds as though you know what your own book is about. <laughs> yeah, yeah it must, I like, think it's that's so something hard. a lot of people struggle with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you're so in it as well. And you're like, I know everything about this and I know everything that happens and I can tell you every little detail, but you don't want that. <laughs> right. And I think something that's really underplayed as well is uh, and I didn't realize until I'd finished the editing process and, and the book was completed and out in the world is that you sort of retain all the different versions and drafts along the way as well. So I have about yeah. three versions in my in my head and I sort of have to check each time, um, you know, what, what was in the fin- final draft because strangely enough, that's the one that you read the least, of course, in, in, in the process. But that's the only one that the, the audience will ever uh, get their hands on. So it is a, a strange thing to try and remember was that chapter in the final book or, you know, what happened to that, that scene or that character even? So I yeah. always have to sort of refresh uh, and make sure I'm going to talk about the right version 
That's a good yeah. point. You've got to describe yeah. the book as we have read it, not how it's previously existed for you. Yeah, and I should say too, the final version is the best version um, for these reasons. <laughs> but you do you do have to remember which one it was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> well, um, like we so... said, we loved the book. We we really loved it. It's just our sort of thing. Thank you. And I know, I think I saw a review where this sort of comparison was made a little bit to Mini Dark's books as well. Um, and it was a sort of little bit of that where you get glimpses of both people and yeah you sort of you the reader knows things um and I love that I love feeling like you're in on it yeah yeah and you can sort of see it's that whole like sort of not necessarily sliding doors moment but you're like oh if only they'd realize then and all that sort of stuff I love that stuff yeah and I think you know the dramatic irony of that is one of the most enjoyable elements to play with especially when you're writing from dual perspectives so bound to happen is written from the alternating perspectives of both protagonists uh in in third person so you sort of have this almost omnipotent lens across the narrative and you you as a reader you can watch all of it unfold and and see you know the the really the, the core of the book is about all these near misses and you know what i'm calling an almost meet cute um and sort of what was drawn out of the book was this sort of tangential uh, almost near collision and you can sort of watch the characters be drawn together closer and closer and they're sort of orbiting each other's lives and I think that's quite you know quite an enjoyable experience to read maybe not so much to live um, but yeah it is it is similar I think Minnie Dark does some some similar things in in her novel Starcrossed as well yeah, and, and yeah. there's a you know you mentioned sliding doors which is absolutely a sort of touchstone I think for a lot of romantic comedy and it's you know, it's almost become um, its own sort of cultural phenomenon, that that film. So I think it, it's not a bad reference at all. And um, yeah, I can't, I can't complain about being compared to Sliding Doors at all. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's so funny, though, because you say like, not that great to live, but actually, like, they're not aware of any of these things, are they? Like, they're not aware of any of the mm. near misses or the opportunities. And I love the I love you describe it as like orbiting each other because obviously that is a huge part of Sophie's character is the like, uh, I can't even remember all the words now, but like all the like orbital stuff. Um, clearly, I'm not an astrophysicist. <laughs> Um, Don't my, worry, neither am I. Yeah, no, when I when I was like, ooh, string theory, I was like, I've heard about that in Quantum Leap. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I was like, that's as close as I get to understanding string theory and, like, quantum physics. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, it, it, it was an interesting process as well, trying to decide how much physics to put into the book. Obviously, mm-hmm. for Sophie's character, I think it was interesting to have a, a woman in STEM and to bring a lot of her you know, theoretical scientific understanding to something as intangible as love. So she very much does base her her whole sense of uh, the world around her, you know, her understanding of, of the life is very much through that scientific lens. Uh, whereas Tom, of course, is the opposite, very sort of hopeless romantic character, mm-hmm. uh, much more and sort of creative led by and his an emotions. artist. Everything happens for a yeah, exactly. And like it'll all work everything, out. Exactly, and, yeah. and I think you know his his world is music, where everything is precomposed and mm. everything does harmonise. And Sophie is you know very different in that respect. So her understanding of orbital dynamics, uh, she approaches you know everything with that that lens. And it was a conversation with the publisher at one point of exactly how much physics should go into this. And the the challenge I was given, I think, moving from some of the earlier drafts to the final book 
was to make sure that there was also chemistry in there as well. And obviously that there are huge expectations romance readers have of yeah. all romance genre, and perhaps especially in a rom-com. And you need to make sure that, and hopefully I did make sure that all of the most enjoyable elements are still in there, um, but just perhaps not in the way that you might expect to encounter them in the, in the way that the characters don't go through that typical structure uh, of, yeah. of a rom-com. You know, there's sort of, Every every rom com tends to start with Act One, boy meets girl, and of course, this without giving too much away, this this book does something a little bit different. So, it was about trying to insert all those enjoyable moments and and meet all of the the cliches and conventions of the genre, um, yeah. but do it in a slightly different way. So yeah, Sophie brings uh, this understanding of orbital dynamics, and uh, she really doesn't believe in anything bigger than that. You know, in terms of fate or destiny or coincidence, any of these things. I think the amount of physics and you know space and science and everything that was in the and book also was music. a really good amount. And, yeah, yeah, and music. But I think maybe some of those elements are, although there is a lot in music that definitely people who are not musicians <laughs> don't know. But um, it seems more accessible, I think, in a way that like physics and science and a lot of that stuff seems like harder or less accessible if you don't know about any of it or you don't think that's your area um but as you said when they start emailing each other and you know tom who doesn't know anything about this is asking his questions um i found it very relatable like when he's like well how do the strings move and you know (laughs) he's like is it real strings how big are the strings is it like music all of that stuff i was like oh good question Yeah, so look, I did cheat a little bit. I think there's no way I could have written this book with two PhD astrophysics candidates. I think having one of them come in as a a layperson and be asking sort of the basic questions and then being able to construct the dialogue where it's, you know, delivering sort of the most interesting version of the the simple truth. I think that definitely helped with the novel and, as you say, makes it a bit more accessible. Uh, I did have a, a master's student check some of the physics when it started to get over you know, my own research, and I got sort of a, a tick of approval there. So hopefully, it, if anyone is an astrophysics scientist, or if you're working in the field, hopefully, reading reading it, most of it will, will stack up to the, the cutting edge. But the problem is, of course, it's changing uh, in small ways all the time. So the, mm. the bigger theory, string theory, is still very much at the, sort of the forefront of our understanding of how the universe might operate. But uh, there are sort of additions and um, questions and challenges that come up all the time. Maybe, maybe we should talk about string theory too and, and I'll try and do my best impression of Sophie and, and break down what it actually is. Yes, um, please. And, and why it's in a rom-com, sort of yeah. more importantly. Yeah. I'm like, that's what Sheldon Cooper studies in The Big Bang Theory, I think. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, actually, and it's, I haven't, I've never seen The Big Bang Theory, so I'm, I'm not going to be able to tie it back to that. But I may, I um, may be it incorrect. Is, <laughs> maybe, maybe. I, I, can't, I can't correct you. So for the purpose of this podcast, you're absolutely right. Um, <laughs> but I think... It is, it is a popular theory, and I think it's quite an exciting one, and it's something that is in a lot of pop culture. Um, I've seen you know, several TV shows, films that will start to reference it, um, because it, it is sort of the more, one of the more exciting theories, and the beauty of it is that it's almost impossible to prove, so it sort of makes it very hard to debunk uh, as well. So string theory, at its most sort of basic level, is the idea that scientists um, came up with a theoretical framework for, you know, what if we took all the particles in physics and just replaced them with strings at its simplest level? And then string theory describes how they 
sort of propagate through space and how they interact with each other. And, you know, the question is, why would they come up with this theory? Um, and basically, it was an attempt to bring together the very small things in the universe and the very big things as well. So the two realms of physics, general relativity and quantum mechanics, don't operate together. So general relativity is great at describing how planets move and how stars move and how people move, anything that is affected by gravity. And then quantum mechanics is all the small things. So subatomic particles like electrons are all pretty familiar with our protons and so on. Mm -hmm. But the problem is when you take one set of equations and put them in the other world, everything breaks. You sort of end up with black holes everywhere or everything trends towards infinity and the whole thing's just a mess, which sort of from a artistic and creative point of view is really inelegant. And I think really surprising as well to physicists. And there's sort of long been this idea that there must be a single set of laws that can describe both of these worlds. Yeah. Um, they should be able to operate together. So string theory, interestingly, when you replace the particles with strings, suddenly everything can share in mathematical understanding. So string theory is, is really a theory of everything. And I think the interesting implication of this is that if the big things and the small things are the same, then these tiny strings, these one-dimensional objects, should act in the same way uh, as the strings we're familiar with, which are you know musical strings, like in a guitar or a piano. So suddenly, and you know, without getting um, too carried away, the, the understanding is that that would make physics uh, a study of harmony and chemistry would become melody. And, you know, Einstein sort of described the universe as, in this sense, would operate as a, a literal symphony. What he called the mind of God would just be cosmic music, uh, which sounds quite uh, fantastical and quite bizarre, uh, but it is one of the leading theories for how the entire universe may or may not operate. I guess the only problem is that it also necessitates the existence of 11 dimensions. And since we're only familiar with four at the moment, we have three dimensions of space, one of time. The question is, where are these other seven dimensions and how do we interact or, or detect them? And until we can, the whole thing might just be a very beautiful but entirely incorrect theory. So in this rom-com, you know, what, what does this have to do with love and fate? Tom sort of stumbles across this theory uh, and thinks that it might describe how his own life works and the way that uh, his long-distance relationship with a, another singer-songwriter, the way something might actually resonate between them, not in sort of a hopeful romantic sense, but in also a very literal physical sense. Uh, and of course, he emails Sophie uh, about this theory when she's uh, working and studying at the University of Sydney Physics Department. And she sort of sees this very romantic understanding and, and can't help but sort of leap in and try and um, contradict it and perhaps debunk it. So that's sort of the, the spark of of their relationship and uh, their interaction throughout the novel. And I think it is a really interesting question precisely because it's so open. You know, there's no way yeah. to, at this point anyway, to, to prove or disprove this. So it, it depends what you'd like to believe, I suppose, and what most interests you, whether you think the universe may in fact be a symphony. Wow. It all does sound very nice, doesn't it? Yeah, that sounds um, amazing. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm curious now. So that's obviously, you know, a lot about... Um, Sophie's work and what she's really interested in and passionate about and that Tom is learning a bit about but then from his perspective all the music stuff and everything did you also have to do a lot of research there? Yeah the music I'm a little bit more familiar with I sort of grew up playing a couple of di different instruments and a lot of the musical theory is is not incredibly complex I think it's a lot simpler than the physics it's probably operating at more of a high school level whereas I think 
the physics is more at that sort of university tertiary level. But trying to describe music and bring it to the page, I think was incredibly complex and something I hadn't quite anticipated how poorly it translates. And I was discussing this with, with a friend of mine who who is a musician and I was showing him lyrics and trying to understand how it could be more clearly portioned out on a page so that they would read as lyrics. Because obviously when you when you sing and when you perform, you can dictate that to the audience. But when you write it down, you're leaving it very much to their imagination. So everyone will read lyrics with different cadence and rhythm and they might imagine melodies. Some people uh, don't like reading lyrics and they'll just skip through them. I think um, you know a, a famous example of that is, is Lord of the Rings. Uh, the whole entire original trilogy is full of music that no one ever seems to, to read. <laughs> so I think that provided its own challenge. I think even though I understood more about music and more of Tom's world, it, it was more difficult to write in that sense. I think definitely lyrics are really hard. <laughs> yeah, lyric, I mean, I when I was reading Daisy Jones and the Six, I skipped over a lot of lyrics because I was just like, I can't imagine how this would sound. So, you know, mm. I think for me, and I have been more and more fascinated lately with... <laughs> We've talked a lot on this podcast about my obsession with Maisie Peters. Um, But, like, I often think about that with songwriting. You know, is it the song that comes first and then they add the lyrics or is it the lyrics? And I'm just fascinated with that because I get the writing part of it, but I just don't understand the music part. And so that to me is, like, genius. I'm just like, how do you you do that and not – you know, like have another song in your head that someone's already done. There's obviously just so much music out there. You know, how do you not accidentally be influenced in remembering something that you heard some other time? But um, what I was going to ask was, is the sort of idea of string theory being like this harmony and this cosmic music, is that what prompted you to make Tom the musician to like bring those two things together or was he always going to be a musician? I think he was always going to be a musician. So in the writing journey, Sophie was the character that first sort of appeared uh, in my mind as I was thinking about the different perspectives you might have on a rom-com. And then I was looking for a natural opposite to that and, Mm -hmm. you know, looking at something that could contradict science and in the sense that it is much more of a emotion, creative-led pursuit, but also something that still had uh, a mathematical understanding and still shared some common language with, uh, with science and with physics, I think was really interesting. So, I mean, music really is physics and you know the chord progressions that most resonate with us have mathematical relationships that can be clearly and precisely defined and and much of music now as well in its sort of electronic composition relies on uh, as much computer science and science as it does traditional musicality and artistry so i think there's a really interesting tension between the two pursuits but also um, a natural language that the characters could share so i think when i came up with the the idea of um, an astrophysics a student or scientist who you know saw the world as just coincidence and just chaos and nothing nothing more than that i was looking for someone that would be able to maybe challenge that belief and i think music sort of then popped into my mind and you know there's something nice about or maybe something more interesting in having the male protagonist be the sort of hopeless romantic and then having the female protagonist being more of that sort of calculated, you know, maybe more rational thinker. And I think that's something that I was attracted to with that, that sort of tension and I wanted to explore. So once, once I determined the different pursuits and the different profiles of the characters, then it was about quickly trying to learn everything I could. And I say quickly, it took 
uh, almost four years to write. So it's not that quickly, but in, yeah. in a reasonable amount of time, understand enough of the physics and bring the music into that as well. Talking a lot about both the characters and everything. And we've talked a bit about they don't meet, but they there are emails and things. The structure of this novel is obviously so unique. Where did that part of the idea come from to actually have them not meet? So that was something that I instantly loved uh, in terms of the challenge of it. Is it possible to write a rom-com where the protagonists don't necessarily meet? So that was something that was always going to be the focus of the the book as soon as I had that thought. And that was almost how it was pitched as well to um, the eventual publisher, Alex Craig at, at Ultimo Press. It was, it was really just sold on its, at the time, the working title of Boy Never Meets Girl. It was something that about halfway through, I thought, I will never make this work. This is impossible. <laughs> but <laughs> thankfully, what I realized very early on that I'd have to do is look at all of the different cliches and, and tropes and then figure out a way to to play on them and thankfully there are almost limitless cliches in in rom-com it's such a beautiful genre and the fact that it's so well trodden and so well explored um, across you know not just fiction but film uh, especially and, and television also so it sort of laid out a bit of a a pathway uh, in how the book should be structured yeah, there's and- so many classic moments and tropes and themes and you know all of these the like beats of the story that everyone expects and yet they're always so different and that's what brings people back all the time because that mm. story is always different and, and how we get are different. to the end is always yeah. different yeah exactly and i think you know there's always it's much like music you know you touched on that before michelle around how do you avoid writing a song that no one's <laughs> written before and there are some very interesting and sort of contentious issues in the legal space around music copyright and i think one brilliant art project was someone brute forced every single melodic combination using software and then trademarked all of them so that in theory, all of music is now trademarked by this one group. And then they released it open source to try and help musicians avoid being sued by other musicians um, for copyright infringement. So there's, there's a lot of questions there, but I think it's very similar in genre fiction where you're not doing anything completely original because readers might not resonate with that everyone knows what they like and they want to read more of it so you want to land in that sweet spot of of delivering the genre but there are infinite ways to play with that and create something different not necessarily uh, entirely new or original but i think you know the way i always think about an idea is two pre-existing things brought together and in this case it was the classic structure of a rom-com with the idea of uh, not not meeting and that that idea as well is not necessarily new i think i'm not sure if you've you've read anything from john koenig he he started out with a blog and then eventually became a book it's called the dictionary of obscure sorrows oh. and it's a basically a compendium of, of invented words and in in that book he has this word or a phrase um, that's moment of tangency and he sort of describes it as this fleeting glimpse of what might have been and the way that two accidental strangers might share almost everything in common except for time and place and that was something i read very early on that in in the journey of writing this book that really was a core you know a a core seed of that challenge of can you write a rom-com about these two accidental strangers and as soon as i read that definition i knew that i had to try it and i think it was it was somewhat inspired by my own journey as well i met my wife uh, in 2015 on tinder and that was a really strange time when dating very rapidly transferred from something that was all about coincidence and all about would you bump into the right person at, at the right you know uh, university tutorial or at the right party or at the right pub uh, and then very quickly became more of this sort of 
algorithmic connection machine that you could deliberately interact with. And it was about, you know, the swipe right, I think, is something we have sort of taken for granted and now seems to be actually moving away from the zeitgeist as well. And a lot of these sort of dating apps that have since proliferated are now really struggling to retain users. And I think they've sort of turned relationships or at least uh, the initial, the meet cute is, is more of a microtransaction now. So it's, it's quite yeah. an interesting space, but having yeah. gone through that myself and sort of being young and single uh, at the time, you know, I was 24 years old when the whole dating scene changed entirely. And, uh, you know, I think in, in beautiful and wonderful ways, but also very strange ways. And, yeah. and that was something that always made me wonder what, what would have happened if, if we hadn't been brought together through something that could cast its net that wide you know what if we'd been relying on just waiting to meet in real in real life um so it's something that we've talked about a lot and we've tried to sort of uh, my wife and i've tried to sort of circle all of the common connections we might have had to either people or places or moments and i think we just simply never would have met but you never know that's that's the beauty of it that's, that's so, so interesting, interesting because i have the opposite you, like at the very beginning <laughs> You do, because at the very beginning when you said about, like, you know, you're orbiting and it's like, oh, and they might never meet, I thought of you immediately, Michelle, because so Michelle met her husband on Tinder. I was swiping for her. You see us in the background um, there. Classic combination, yeah. 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 So, so I swiped on um, Jack on Tinder. But then you figured out that, like, there were all, you know, it's a small town, there were all these other connections. Yeah. It probably would have met at some point we definitely would have so once we met um and started dating we realized that his sister had done work experience with me and had sort of wanted to set us up and also we had mutual friends who went like he went to a different school with me but most of the people from that school I ended up working with so he was meant to come to a going away party for someone that I went to and we maybe would have met then yeah it's just it, it maybe we would have met eventually. I like to think that we would have because we have all those connections and it's a small town. It's interesting the the language you use though, right? The the idea that he was meant to be at a party, I think is really interesting. And yes. the way that you just you'd never know. And I think that's mm. the fascinating part about this is so many of our days are so normal and we make thousands of decisions in each each and every one of them. And you are never quite aware of which one is going to totally veer your life in one direction or another and, and might have a profound impact on it. And I think that's something that is especially fascinating to try and play out in not only your own life, but also with, with two characters and build in all these different moments where another choice, you know, maybe even a similar choice might have completely changed the course of, of that relationship or that almost romance or that uh, that novel. I think it is really funny, all those misconnections and um when you're in a small town, it becomes more obvious that you've got like mutual friends and all this sort of stuff, but it just, it is going on all around us all the time. And it's kind of weird when you start to think about it. So it is great, great fodder for a novel, um, especially a rom-com. Yeah. I think it, it, writing this as well sort of helped prevent me spiraling through that in my own <laughs> life, I think, because it is one of those things that feels very much like a 2am sort of thought that might pop up in your mind of you know what if this different moment had played out or you know what if I'd gone left instead of right I think you could get very stuck in that and I've sort of done that with as I said with Elodie my wife we've sort of played this idea of um, I think our first date uh, it was slightly later because I was working you know the agency life had sort of kept me in the office so I'd pushed it back and then it had reached that threshold where she was like thinking 
am I going to hang around in the city for another half hour when I'd normally, you know, or am I, am I going home or am I going to the, to the bar? So, you know, those little tiny moments, um, if I had one more piece of client feedback, I might never have, have made it. So it is a fascinating and also horrifying game to play in your (laughs) own life and see how close you were to complete disaster. Um, so I think having, two protagonists that I could sort of torture with that proposition was almost a sort of therapeutic element to it and um, being able to play play with someone else's life with sort of no consequences there yeah it is brilliantly <laughs> fun to read I absolutely I absolutely loved it so you mentioned as well that obviously um, Sophie was probably the, the first sort of part of your writing did you find one character easier to write than the other at all I think they had different challenges to them. I think I sort of naturally align with Sophie's worldview. I'm something of a, I'd call myself a cynical romantic, if that's even a thing, possibly just a cynic. <laughs> so her her understanding of the world, I think, was fun. It's more sort of fun to attack other people's beliefs and debunk them. And then I kept having to come back to Tom <laughs> and understand how he could believe so strongly about something that he can't, you know, prove or, or, or touch. So it was... He was definitely more of a challenge in the beginning. Where I have to say, the way you've been talking about this all up until now, I find that surprising. I know. A lot of people do. You know, Why would you write a rom-com when you're a cynic? But I think that's the whole pleasure of it is that yeah. you can indulge <laughs> in that side of, of things. And you know, Tom is really enjoyable in that he knows exactly who he is and what he wants in life. He doesn't necessarily know how to get it or... Or, or how it should be, but he, he knows what he's going after. So as a character, I think early on in his arc, when he's at his most convinced, um, it, was, it was a challenge to write and really to get that voice. And actually I was chatting to, um, Ash, I know you interviewed her recently, Ash, Ashley Clergy and Blunt. Yeah. Uh, we're in a writer's group together and yeah. she's a fantastic writer and famously does not enjoy rom-coms um, very much. In yeah, I got that sense from her book. <laughs> space. <laughs> I think I think mine mine is one of the first uh, rom coms I think she's ever been forced to read because mm. it, it went through the group so she had to read the entire thing in sort of five thousand word chunks across <laughs> about a year and then like debrief uh, with some not, serial maybe killers close to eighteen months <laughs> exactly and then she'd do a palate cleanse and yeah. read about some psychopath or something uh, as, as she likes to do but yeah I think she she pointed out very early on too in in one of the maybe the second draft that it's such a fine line with deep romantic feelings where it can it can become a little bit creepy and and rom-com actually Mm. is is great if you go back even a few years and you re-watch a film they often don't hold up they often exhibit behavior where described as stalkerish or psychopathic and it's presented as romance very honestly as as romance but it it is a fine line and some of the dialogue with tom early on and trying to convey his feelings i think they felt fell a little bit short of poetic and ended up in a little bit sort of that almost desperate, slightly creepy territory. So trying to rein him in while still putting enough of that feeling on the page, I think was, was definitely a balance. So I'd say Tom um, provided more of the challenges, uh, especially early on in the writing. And then um, as they interacted, it became easier because I think they could start to shift in their own character arcs and their own worldviews. And, you know, you can't help but be influenced by the people you meet and, they were both being challenged in, in the book and both sort of forced to reckon with their own understanding of the world. And that, I think, was when it became more interesting and more fluid in in their characters and their their perspectives. It's interesting that you say that, though, because I, I think that creepy thing is probably much like it would be harder to avoid like and make sure that that's not what's going on. 
when the characters haven't met. Like, it makes you think of... Isn't there a scene in Sleepless in Seattle where Meg Ryan is, like, trying to find the guy and she's, like, across the street from Tom Hanks's like, houseboat and then it's like, oh, and then she leaves and she's like, what am I doing? I'm, like, following this guy around and I've never met him. <laughs> and it's like, that's really weird. Yeah, exactly. And both characters have to question that at some point. You know, Tom and Sophie, through various parts of the novel, do try and, and get in touch with each other and it, it does sort of force them to question... What what am I doing and how weird does this look from a third party point of view? So that yeah. is that is a fine line, but helpfully it also creates some pretty realistic barriers to their meeting to you know keep them apart at certain moments. You only sort of have to step back and think, <clears throat> what does this look like? Uh, and you know, is this is this a bit just a bit strange? So I think having fun with sort of that social you know risk for embarrassment or you know risk to appear like you're, you're becoming a bit of a you know it's one thing to cyber stalk someone i think we're all very comfortable with that now and that's sort of <laughs> yeah. especially our generation that's something yeah. that we grew up doing and that's something yeah, that we definitely. sort of most of our formative years were spent meeting people connecting with them online and very quickly trying to assess you know um the best thing facebook ever did was add the relationship status that was the sort of innovation that pushed yeah, them from... Yeah, you can from, check so quickly. Yeah, yeah. and you know, that, that's what really made them catch on in, in uh, the college culture in the States and then you know, exported to the rest of the world was that ability to instantly see, is someone single? Um, and you know, again, I sort of think it shows how universal uh, a romance story can be and some of these interesting questions around the use of technology. But to cross from cyber-stalking to sort of real-life stalking, that's a very different thing. And um, yeah. you know, how closely should you look for your online connections in the real world before it becomes just, you know, a little bit weird. So it does feel a bit weird to be perpetuating the assumption here, but we've not spoken to many men who write rom-coms. <laughs> and obviously, very stereotypically, it's considered to be a genre that women read and that women write. Not saying that, like I said, I feel a bit weird perpetuating that stereotype here. Um, but how do you sort of I'm feel sure it's not the that? first time you've heard yeah no I'm sure but like no, no, I feel absolutely. but this I guess is is part of the fact that you called it like a subversive rom-com as well something that's subversive is also the fact that it's it's written by a straight man what have been the what the conversations around that and sort of the assumptions about that I think yeah, I mean, the response is interesting. I think the best piece of feedback I've seen, because I'm not going to pretend that I don't read Goodreads reviews or when someone tags the, the book or, or me in Instagram, obviously I read everything. I think probably everyone does, whether or not they admit it. I think the best piece of feedback I've, I've seen from a reader, the one I enjoyed the most, was something along the lines of, this is a book for everyone who thinks that men can't write romance, go and read this book. And I thought, what a brilliant That's so way nice. to, um, you know, what a brilliant compliment. And I think it, it's so true, I Michelle. I wouldn't agree. even feel strange <laughs> about asking me that because it's it's absolutely the case that it's it's not that common for men um, or straight men to write rom-coms. It's, it's actually highly unusual. And I think I have a theory about this as well, um, why that's the case. I'm, if you look at all of pop culture, young men are always creating art that's about love and relationships and sex in some combination, except for fiction. And it's kind of strange. I mean, look at Australia's most popular cultural export right now. Probably Kid Leroy would be, if not the oh, top, I thought, is certainly up there. I was like, there. oh, Bluey. <laughs> I was like, where oh, are we Bluey, going? Yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> Sorry. Okay. It's, it's definitely, no. it's definitely We have a Bluey a tie, section at uh, work too. Keith and Grace. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. And 
But that's, you know, that, that's the interesting thing is that Kid Leroy is not singing about crime or workplace culture or, you know, in-depth politics. He's singing about love and relationships and the frustrations. Yeah, no one questions it. it when you're a musician, mm. do they? Right. And no one questions it when you're an artist. And it's even a cliche, you know, male artists, visual artists will paint usually just women, at least in the early stages of their career. It's very common. So the question is sort of why aren't more writers writing in romance and rom-com genres? And I think... And this is just my theory. I think it's because writing is the one art form that probably can't attract a relationship because you can't you can't practice it or even perform it. So I think it doesn't help men get laid is the really simple <laughs> way of breaking that down. Yeah, because yeah. if you're a musician, that's instantly got all these associations attached to it. If you're an artist, something that is easier to flaunt, especially in these days when you have social media mm. um, that you can show work and, and sort of put it across and um, also at a kind of a basic level once you you know maybe you know can paint like one thing or sing like one song or play one song or whatatever you can show you it can off and it's like that. you're like exactly. oh look at my talent whereas like <laughs> writing a whole book as you said takes a long time <laughs> yeah. so yeah and look if you've ever just... watched a writer work not that you would but if you ever have it's in it's intensely boring and in, let alone watching it it's sort of watching someone grapple with a blank page or a, an empty word document is not particularly it's all going on inside uh, romantic <laughs> or particularly exactly so i think i think there's something yeah. there perhaps that young young men aren't drawn to that as much um but as for why it's so unusual i'm, I'm not really sure i think maybe romance has suffered from this sort of misconception that it's chiclet as well it's not taken especially seriously as a genre which is again strange considering it's one of the most popular and commercially successful genres of of all time possibly possibly the most successful. Um, so I think it's interesting to be on the other side of that and starting to maybe, maybe we will see more men writing about uh, romance and, and rom-coms or, uh, or maybe it really just was the nineties the wave and you know, those will be the sort of cultural touchstones that continue and, and, you know, there might be something else coming next that we haven't really thought about yet. It's funny too, that you mentioned like other things because also in that like films and art uh, in that kind of, connection I just suddenly thought like obviously like Richard Curtis is known for writing like some of the most popular like rom-commy movies as problematic as I find love actually it's still like you know a, a cultural touchstone for so many people and yet yeah why don't we have more men writing rom-coms and maybe it's also to do yeah, with exactly. this idea that like I mean I guess music can be quite intimate as well but it feels like it's really like an insight even more into like those inner thoughts, especially if you're writing like first person narratives and stuff like that. There's that kind of, I guess, always that thing in fiction of like, oh, how much is like the the author and how much is made up? And um, so I wonder too if it's to do with like the idea that men aren't, haven't been kind of brought up to show as much vulnerability or sort of the whole idea that like not be as emotional about things. Obviously we are changing that. Hopefully, you know, more and more people are growing up more open about these things, but I wonder if it is a bit more of that idea of, yeah. And also they don't want to be seen to be reading romance books either. I don't know. It's a, it's a complex one and it feels like it's like, like it's difficult to unpack and you're not just going to like change it overnight, mm. but we need, it's, it's one, like this book is so great and 
it would be so lovely to see more men doing that as well not to take over from the the because obviously like it's probably the one genre where like it is mostly female dominated yeah, actually which dominate. is great like yeah. we're not saying that we should yeah get rid it's of that, kind of funny yeah. to be calling for you know what you know what this needs is more patriarchy yeah <laughs> i mean it's very barbie isn't it like i was thinking when you were like showing off to people i was like yeah you can't really like do a you know Ken on the beach playing his guitar but riding you can't really do that yeah <laughs> no yeah. Totally. And I think you know I think film is interesting because you're absolutely right if you look at the some of the most popular rom-com films um you know Nora Ephron aside a lot of them are now being directed or written by men I think one of my favorite films uh, in that genre 500 days of summer is r- directed by Mark Webb and written by two men, who Scott Neustadter and, and another, I think Mark Weber, confusingly, has almost <laughs> the same name as a director. But, so it, it's it's the work of three men. That's sort of one of the most popular rom-com films that you know grossed hundreds of millions of dollars. And mm, it is film. strange that we haven't yet seen maybe more men in publishing. But I think you know overall the publishing industry is very female dominated. Not that that's you know a good thing or a bad thing. It's just, it's just what it is. The most agents, editors, publishers. Um, I know Michelle, you, uh, sorry, Caitlin, you're working in, in publishing as well. And Michelle, you said you work in a bookstore. I think it is something that um, perhaps, you know, we need to look more at the the fundamental sort of uh, way that we're teaching English or the way we're bringing boys and girls to reading at perhaps different rates. I think there was a book and a, a series I remember or an author maybe is a better way to describe it. Matthew Riley, I remember, drew oh my God, a lot I love of boys Riley, yeah. into reading. <laughs> I don't know how as a teenage and girl he, I was into that, but I loved his You're stuff. into it as well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But his, you know, his, his really cornered that market, I think, and he's done so you know, brilliantly and had a lot of success. And I think for me, I went to a fairly conservative Christian primary and, and high school uh, in the Northern Beaches, and I remember... Matthew Riley's book, one of his, I think it was his first book, actually, Ice Station. Uh, and that was the first time I, I didn't realize until that point that you could print the word fuck. I didn't know that was <laughs> allowed. And that was quite interesting. So that, that was um, something that I think a lot of people were drawn to. But there is a, there has been a gap. There has, and maybe continue to be a gap. I think what we have now that's obviously a huge cultural force is now book talk is driving definitely um you know teenage women and young women but also teenage boys young men into reading and we're getting a sense of virality and trends in fiction that maybe we haven't had before because the the culture couldn't spread quite as quickly you were sort of waiting for word of mouth which is a much more intimate connection you know one to one or one to several versus now obviously everything's broadcast everything is one to many and i think the the, algorithmic, the algorithmic power behind a recommendation from the right type of creator uh, is, is just insane now. And you're seeing these kind of crazy titles sweep across the world. It's probably a homogenizing force, which is maybe not so great and that we're now reading fewer and fewer titles and more of the same titles, I think, than perhaps we ever have before. But hopefully it'll be bringing in bigger audiences something has to hopefully bring people yeah. back to back to reading that's so it means so interesting and i'm so glad you don't mind us talking about it because it is fascinating i can't say i'll always write rom-coms i think i've started playing around with another idea that would be i mean definitely it would have romantic elements um but it'd be much more of sort of a dark like a black comedy and maybe maybe even start pushing into thriller maybe it's something i actually will actually enjoy reading when i start <laughs> putting it through the, through the writers group but I, I definitely i have a, a soft spot for the genre 
I really enjoy rom-coms. I think I don't read as many as I should maybe. I think it's something that I've more explored through film, which is, you know, obviously also brilliant medium and, and takes a lot of the same, you know, passion and, and, and enjoyment to, to create or to craft or to, to absorb uh, as an audience member. But yeah, I think it it is something that I'd like to see more of and men and women writing rom-coms. I think the golden age of the rom-coms, obviously the sort of early 2000s, late 90s era, but perhaps we're due for another one. Hopefully it's in, in the next couple of years. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. I feel like it's been coming for a while. Yeah. You mentioned before that it took four years to write Bound to Happen. So we are really interested in sort of delving more into the writing journey and the publishing process. Tell us a bit more about that. How did you go from writing to publish book? Yeah, so I've almost always been a writer in, in some sense. So I when I'm not sort of in the fiction world, uh, I work in advertising. I started out as a copywriter, um, which I know you're both very familiar with, but um, for people listening, often copywriter is confused with a legal copyright. Yeah, I know. Issue, I had someone ask me about that the other the day. That... I was like, no, it's just words yeah, it's, on it's websites. Very, <laughs> yeah, very common misconception, but it's just words, basically, just a word writer. That's just the term. So I've always been uh, interested in language there. And I started writing, Bound to Happen was started in 2019, early 2019. And it came off the back of another manuscript I'd written and one that's unpublished. And it was sort of this, this book was uh, had the working title Snowfalls Over Kyoto, and it was somewhat more serious and a little bit more literary, and it was more of a coming-of-age romance story. And I think it was not a bad first attempt is how I'd describe it, but it, you know, I, I can definitely see why it wasn't um, picked up. I think it was very kind of serious in the way that only a book written by a 20-something can be. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it maybe was yeah. veering towards uh, you know something a little bit more pretentious but something that I, I think I had to write to understand the craft and to to begin that journey so that that manuscript was submitted to Hachette and not acquired and interestingly which I'm told never really happens um, the process I'd gone through was uh, I went through an agent first so I submitted the book to literary agents um, and it was picked up by ALM by Lynn Tranter and then she'd taken it to Hachette. And even though it was rejected, often you'll just get either a form rejection or a nice rejection that has a bit more you know, personality to it. They've taken the time to write something. Maybe you might get some commentary, a little bit of feedback, some thinly veiled praise or criticism, and depending, depending what's there. But interestingly, the publisher had said we should meet for a coffee uh, and they'd wanted to know what else I was working on. And the truth at the time was nothing. You know, I just finished my first manuscript. I wasn't working on anything. Um, but what I'd done was then very quickly pulled together five top line story ideas and sent those through. And it had come back through uh, my agent that there was one in particular that this uh, publisher was interested in. So we went off to coffee and I was pitching this story and you know, I'd, I'd had a couple of years in advertising by that point. So I was pretty comfortable so pitching an idea. <laughs> well, look, I was comfortable pitching an idea that hadn't hadn't been created yet, which I think is a, a different type of skill in itself and that you you don't know where you're going yet either. And I was getting through this very convoluted storyline about uh, identical twins that were sort of living in each other's lives. It was a very bizarre sort of premise. And it became apparent about halfway through this pitch that that was not actually the idea she'd been interested in. I'd prepared the wrong pitch. There'd been a bit of miscommunication between <laughs> oh, no. between the three of us. So Alex Craig, the, the publisher, sort of stopped me and said, actually, what I'm interested in is this rom-com idea. Can you tell me about that? And really, at the time, all I had was boy never meets girl. So four words. And then I was just talking and I sort of started inventing it more or less 
on the spot. And I think, you know, Alex was very polite and understood that I was a, you know, an aspiring writer. Um, so she basically told me, that sounds interesting, go and write that book and then we'll talk. So four years later, I submitted Bound to Happen back to Alex Craig, who had since moved to Ultimo Press. And thankfully this one, she did acquire. So my wow. journey, I think, has been, yeah, two manuscripts about seven, eight years, I think, from the first inkling of wanting to write a manuscript to then seeing it on a shelf. It is a surprisingly slow industry. I think coming from an advertising background, we, you know, we, we have to move a bit more rapidly. There's a sort of commercial imperative to create quickly, which is good and bad. And publishing, I think, gave me a chance to really engage with the craft at a much slower pace. And I think the beautiful part about acquire having a book acquired as well as everyone will tell you this anyone who's been published will tell you that when you get acquired the work actually starts which you don't believe when you hear it you sort of think well i've done you know four drafts myself my agent's given me feedback i've done another pass i feel like this book's at least three quarters done and then you realize actually it's probably only about a third (laughs) of that manuscript will survive into the the final print run yeah it's pretty crazy i have to say that is a very unique publishing journey story (laughs) um I'm always so impressed when I hear these stories from publishers and agents where they think like they, I don't know how they do it, how they see something in someone's writing. And, you know, even like you said, even though that other book was not the right one to be like, but he could write something good. And even knowing from like your crazy idea that you were coming up with like (laughs) on the spot to be like, okay, but write that one and then like send it back to me and it's still all worked out and you sent it back to her and here we are. That's insane. Yeah. I think, you know, I have to credit Alex. I'm very appreciative and very grateful that she saw something in the writing and, and took the time to, to meet me and you know, hear that crazy pitch. I think also perhaps the, and we can talk about, you know, the pros and cons of this, but the manner of acquisition for books, I think also allows a bit of that bravery and that they don't, mm. um, you know, in fiction, you don't, unlike a nonfiction where you might buy a submission in fiction obviously you just wait until there's a manuscript there to acquire so there's very little risk in her saying okay that's interesting go away and and, and write it um and my agent is brilliant lynn did try and sell it i think in about the ten thousand word mark we resubmitted and tried to get the book deal done then but uh you know that's very rare in australia yeah i think we're going to need to see the other the other sort of eighty thousand words and i typically write quite long as well i think my first draft of bound to happen was about one hundred and twenty thousand words which is Whoa. far too long for genre fiction i think that's only okay in sci-fi and fantasy can you sort of reach <laughs> that word count so yeah. they were absolutely right not to acquire it off the first ten thousand because i would have been very um concerned seeing it come in come in that, that length later so yeah it, it it's something that you know, I'll always be grateful to Alex for pulling something out of not the slush pile because it came through an agent, which always helps. So for Lynn for first recognizing uh, my writing from that slush pile. And I think she liked that I was in advertising too. I think she always said, you know, if you can sell toothpaste, you know the value of words. And you <laughs> might agree with that too, Michelle, yeah. being a content copywriter. You, yeah. know, you, you have to be able to sell and work with, with anything, any topic. So it does sort of stretch your skills and, and stretch your storytelling ability to wrap narrative around inanimate objects, let alone when you can finally work with characters in the fiction world. Uh, it, it becomes much more sort of rich and, and textured and layered. But I'll always be grateful that, for Alex for giving me that first coffee and allowing me the chance to try something different. Um, and thankfully, for I think all of us, thankfully it worked. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So then apart from, obviously, everyone is always surprised by how long of a process publishing is. 
um and it all just takes so long and yes how much work is on the other side um once you're acquired was there anything else about the process that really surprised you I mean, I was lucky that I'd seen a few authors go through it as well. Mm. So I'd sort of had, I mean, my wife published her debut. Uh, it's yeah, also a rom-com, her before, debut novel. Right? Yeah, in 2021. Yeah. So when she published Love in Theory, I definitely had a chance to see secondhand how the feedback would work. So I was somewhat prepared there. And also just working in advertising. The thing that maybe surprised me was how polite publishing is. <laughs> I'm used to yeah. very direct feedback given um, in, in a, you know, obviously a professional manner, but it's interesting getting feedback from people in the corporate world who don't engage with creativity and don't necessarily understand storytelling and will give all sorts of different feedback, some of which you disagree with and it becomes a, a bit of a battle, some of which um, is just plain, plain wrong, um, objectively wrong, and you have to then fight not to have your the work diluted. I always refer to feedback as the chance to pour some water into the cordial. It's just a question of how much dilution will occur. So the difference in, in publishing was not just that everyone was so polite and maybe even too polite and sort of have to read between the lines to determine when someone doesn't like something, but just how refreshing it was to be working with professionals who were all there to make the idea and the novel, the manuscript, the best and most distilled version it could be. So that was a really enjoyable experience. It still was an absolute struggle. I had a brilliant copy editor, Diane Blacklock, who is a writer as well. And she, I think, gave me about 20 pages of notes and you know hundreds and hundreds of comments marked up in the manuscript when I sort of got that back and opened it for the first time. You have this sort of feeling of dread, um, something that took you several years to, to write, you know, have three months to rewrite. But it was all in all just an enjoyable process because I knew that it was only going to make the work better um, and it was going to be the best result possible um, through that process. So I think that's what drew me to traditional publication. You know, these days there are lots of options. If you want to get work out there, you can self-publish, you can, but my objective was always to be able to engage with other editors and publishers and professionals and really take that next step in, in the writing. Yeah. And let the whole team pull it together and become the best book it can be. Yeah, just have all that input and have people who, you know, can talk to the commercial commerciality of it as well and that they know what will sell and they know how to find a place on the shelf for the work and you have to sort of be receptive to that. And something we discussed and I think the only sort of tension that we had, and I'll be careful about how much I say, just not because of a publisher relationship, just because of spoiler reasons, but there was a question at some point around an epilogue and what that would do to the book and that was, I think, that was the only piece of uh, feedback that I refused to uh, address. So, you know, I don't think they were wrong. I think that might have helped it fulfill some other audience expectations and, you know, really make it clearer what it was doing for the reader. But um, there was a vision I had for the book and, uh, you know, you do have to sort of remain true to that even throughout the process when it starts to get close to your, your print deadline and you only have one final pass left to read through. So I think that was, you know, all in all, just such a great experience, um, not without its challenges, but I think publishing can count itself very lucky that there are so many people willing to guard good work and try and make it great. It's interesting though, because it's like what you said before about um, people being so polite, because that is the thing is like an editor and a publisher, you know, copy editor, proofreader is not there to be like, this is wrong, fix it. They're there to help you make the story better. So you ultimately, you know, still got your name on it. So it's you've got to be happy with all the different changes and everything. Yeah, definitely. You almost become, when you're an author, 
and your work it's a you almost become the client in that everyone is there to help you and i think it's up to you to listen to that and, and to take that assistance but absolutely at the end of the day uh your name will be on the work forever so you have to be really satisfied that it, it, it is yours. I was just going to ask one final question, which is just a bit of a fun one, but I'm really interested in the fact that obviously your wife is an author as well. And not only that, you're writing sort of in the same genre. Was it ever difficult to be working on your own projects and like make sure you weren't, I guess, not stealing each other's ideas, but like taking inspiration from conversations and stuff like that. Like, did you ever have that discussion? Yeah, and there's actually a word for that, cryptonesia, which is this, nothing to do with, with um, cryptocurrency, but cryptonesia <laughs> is this, this sort of experience you have when you mistake a memory for an idea. So you have something that you think is original, but you're mm. actually just going through the process of remembering it unattached to its context. So you think that you've come up with something um, and this sort of loops all the way back to the conversation we had around when you're writing a song, how do you not write someone else's song? You know, yeah. there's so much inspiration that you've drawn in. But for us, it was pretty simple. We have very different processes when we're writing. I like to share early and often. So I'll be sharing all of my work with, with her. And actually, I think that's one of the most defining moments in our relationship. I'd started writing that first manuscript I mentioned um, before Elodie had had started had started writing a, a novel of her own and I was sharing this work with her and it was quite you know a potential turning point you know if you don't like someone's writing I'm not sure you could continue to be in a relationship that might be a, a real mm. sticking point yeah because um, it is you know in some level it's it's your own self that you're putting on the page yeah. um, even through obviously the lens a of fiction of yourself yeah. yeah right so I think that was kind of interesting but Elodie is the exact opposite where she's wouldn't say secretive, but she's definitely got a point she wants to get to with the work before she'll share any of it. So I didn't see anything of love in theory. I think maybe I'd managed to sneak a, a chapter or so, but until she'd finished that, probably the first polished draft, that was when I first read it. So I read it the first time at, you know, when it was already 80,000 words and pretty well put together. And there, there have been a few things I think we've been riffing on similar ideas. Um, love in theory is a rom-com that explores all the theories of relationships and love and how to find and navigate through it through a sort of romantic comedy lens and it's I mean obviously I'm, I'm biased but it's brilliant and witty and I highly recommend it um, <laughs> but you know pulling on that theory and then what I was doing was looking at um, more scientific and music theory I think there was some natural overlap so nothing too similar I'd say I think there was maybe a point where we both wanted to use the Drake equation. Um, but since she was published first, uh, obviously I had to, you know, had to pull that out of, out of my manuscript at <laughs> some point. Um, so the Drake equation is the, the search for, if anyone's familiar with it, it's the search for alien life and the, the probability of, of finding it. And there was a English, I think it was a London based mathematician who applied it to his search for a partner and realized that he actually had a better chance of finding alien life than he did a date in London. So <laughs> I think there was something around, I think there was something around that in both manuscripts at one point, but to the victor go the spoils. And yeah, I think that that's in Elodie's book still. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah. and obviously I could, could never do that now. So yeah, we have to quickly sort of carve out some different niches and it'll be interesting to see if we, like I'm kind of moving into more this sort of black comedy space for the next work and, you know, Elodie's moving in, in maybe a different direction as well. So it'll be interesting to see sort of where we keep going from, from here and how we have to sort of maybe dance around it a little bit. But <laughs> I think um, having different publishers, having different agents, um, having, you know, different, obviously different experiences, even though we have a lot of shared experience too, I think there's so much to draw on and only so many words you can put into a novel that mm. we'll probably always have enough 
clear space. Uh, maybe we'll write something together. We haven't kind of ruled out this I idea. I was going to or... ask, will you ever, do you think you'd ever do something together? Yeah, I'd, I'd be really interested in that. I think there's some potential. We've kicked around a few possibilities. We wrote a short screenplay just as a bit of an exercise together to see, you know, how to do something in lockdown during the COVID <laughs> years. And yeah. everyone else was making sourdough. So we, we sort of made a screenplay. Um, so yeah, there, there could be, there could be something there. We'll see. Cool. That's Ooh, really cool. Stay tuned. That. <laughs> yeah. I look forward to reading what both of you are working on. Very excited for this black comedy as well. This sounds really good. Um, thank you so much for joining us. It's just been such a delight to talk to you. Yeah. Thanks so much. Really love what you've been doing with the podcast. I think I saw you're on season 11 or, or something yeah. ridiculous that now. That does which not mean seems... it's been 11 years. It just means we do two a year no, sometimes. No. <laughs> Yeah, we do two seasons a year. Yeah. So, but it has been about six years. Yeah, it has yeah, been. Yeah, no, it's it's really it's really fantastic. I think it's so nice to have oh, some different you. spaces to come on and talk about the work. And yeah, you know, appreciate you bringing on um, a male rom com writer. <laughs> have fun. <laughs> we do, it's funny, like we haven't had like yes. a straight male guest for many, many, many years, have we, Caitlin? Like, <laughs> yes. it's you. Yeah, no. like we usually have like. At this point, it's almost feeling deliberate. <laughs> It's been great to have you on. Please let people know where they can find and follow you online. Yes, I'm notoriously uh, uninterested in the author Instagram, but you can (laughs) find me at Jonathan Shannon author. Um, But I'd prefer if everyone just finds me in a bookstore and picks up a copy of Bound to Happen. So feel free to cyberstalk me um, or, or head into your local bookstore. Thank you for listening to Better Words. You can chat to us on Instagram at betterwordspod. And follow me, Michelle, at Unfinished Bookshelf. And me, Caitlin, at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book-loving friend and leave a rating or review.